0: Amen. I am so grateful for, uh, for Laura and for all of our church family and being missional in different ways that the Lord gives you opportunity to and compels you to. That's why we share those missions minutes to give our church family an opportunity to see, hear, and know what, what God is putting on the hearts of different people in our church family and to be inspired and challenged and encouraged by what God's doing. Um, we're going to be in the book of Romans clearly from that video and where we uh, started off last week as we are in this book. So go ahead and turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. While you're doing that, just a quick thing. um, I want to uh, give thanks to a a certain group of people. I just want to tip my cap to our incredible volunteers, everybody on Team WOG, everybody who serves in some form or fashion. Of course, you see the band up here every week, but there's all the tech people behind the scenes. There's the wonderful, patient people who are loving on your kiddos right now, um, and ushers, greeters, I'm going to miss somebody, the counters, everybody, but one thing is very true, that without the, the perpetual giving and serving of our church family, this doesn't happen. And uh, we... We, this doesn't exist, and so I want to say thank you. One of the ways every year that we do say thank you is through a VIP event, a an appreciation event. And so, our Team Wog Volunteer Appreciation Event is coming up uh, Sunday, October eighth, from twelve thirty to four. That is at right around the corner at the Odyssey Fun Center. And so if you're someone who is inclined to bowling and think that you're, you're pretty good, I'd love for you to beat me. And, um, and then beyond that, I don't know if you know that Sheboygan County is known for bowling to the extent that when I was flying here 11 years ago to check out the church, pray about if the Lord was leading me to move here, I'm on my flight Descending into Milwaukee. And the guy that I've been small talking with sitting next to me, he says, "Uh, you know, so where are you headed? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Sheboygan. He said, oh man, I hope you like bowling. And uh, so I don't know if that's something that outsiders think of you, of us, uh, but uh, apparently if you live here, you're supposed to be into bowling. I guess you have to have something to do during the winter. Um, But um, that's a good opportunity for us to just get together, bring the kids, have fun, And even if you're like, you know what, I'm not good at bowling and I'm going to find the gutter every time, let's all just laugh together and enjoy each other's company. And um, one thing, though, is that we need you to register. So you can either go to our website, wog.church, click on the events and follow to the registration there, or in the bulletin you got this morning in your hand, there's a QR code that you can scan that'll take you to all of the registration stuff at the website. But we need to make sure that we're ready for everybody who would come. Uh, It's going to be a good time just enjoying each other and letting us appreciate you for for serving. All right, as you have turned to Romans chapter 1, let me pray. God, I thank you for your word, that it is living and active and powerful, that you speak and work through your word, that it transforms us, that your Holy Spirit is at work. And God, I do ask by your Holy Spirit today that as we open your word and as we share it, that you would guide what I say, you would guide what we hear that you would open hearts to receive the truth and that you would do the transformational work that only you can do, that in, in, in the teaching of your word that, that the result would be so much more than just inspiration from motivational speaking, but that your Holy Spirit would be at work transforming hearts through the de- declaration of your word. Give glory to yourself in that, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For the first 26 years of my life, many of you know that I grew up in the South, and that was between Virginia, Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas, and the longest that I lived anywhere was Arkansas for 12 years, which does mean in a year and a half, technically like a year and two months, actually, that Wisconsin will be the longest I've lived anywhere. So I'm going to be legit Wisconsinite at that point. And thank you. I thought somebody might be excited about that. Um, And so I'm actually pretty excited about that. But I grew up in the South. The last seven years before I moved to Wisconsin was spent in Texas. And my dad, his entire family is from the greater Houston area. My mom's entire family is from the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, all right, go Cowboys. Okay, yeah, I'm sure. And uh, I expected so many amens right there. Yeah, right. But uh, hey, you can be happy the Packers look better than we all thought they would, right? So anyways, before this gets off the rails, I, uh, the last seven years I was in Houston and I've been in Texas plenty with my family living there. And something interesting that you might not know is that there are plenty of spots in Texas where if you go to a restaurant and the waitress is taking your order and especially your drink order, they might say, hey, what kind of Coke do you want? And in case you didn't know, they're not asking, do you want Coke, Diet Coke or Coke Zero? They're asking, what kind of soda do you want? You could reply to the question of what kind of Coke do you want with Mountain Dew, and it would be perfectly coherent in their mind. Because that is the terminology that's used in much of Texas for soda in general. Or if we went a little more east of here, we might say pop. Um, And so in Texas, a lot of people just say Coke for all soda. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because sometimes there are words that have different meanings in different places and or are used to mean something that they don't truly mean. Although Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, the greatest two that exist, um, Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, whatever it might be, although they are relative to Coke, they are not Coke. Coke. In truth, right? And so sometimes as we are diving into this book of Romans, walking through it, and we see that the overwhelming theme and and weight of the message of Romans is the gospel. There's a lot of muddiness, murkiness, gray, cloudiness around what is the gospel. And so today we're going to be talking about what the gospel is not. And we're going to go continuing on through the opening introductions of Paul's letter to the Romans, but we're going to see as the theme of this letter is the gospel, and as he starts mentioning that word, the gospel, I think sometimes we grow up in a culture where that term is used, where whether you grew up in church or not, you could hear in movies or in television shows where they say, that's the gospel truth. And it's like, that's a way of just really saying like honest truth or it's true, true. It's like, well, that's not necessarily What the gospel means, in fact, the word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelios, which literally means good news. So in the New Testament, when you see Jesus talking about the good news, or the Apostle Paul or others talking about the gospel, they're talking about the good news about Jesus Christ. And what we don't want to do with something so important is let it be called a Coke when it's a Mountain Dew. We don't, want, we don't want to be thinking that we know what the gospel is because it's something that's relative, but it's not the gospel. So that's why we're digging into that today. You've already turned to Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse 8. Paul says this, first, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve, uh, who I serve with my spirit, in the sake—or I'm sorry—in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So a few thoughts on this opening portion, the close of the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans. One thing I want to point out first is the fact that Paul, in case you didn't know, 13 letters he wrote that are in the New Testament, letters that were canonized as books of the Bible like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, several others, 13 epistles that Paul wrote. Out of 13 of them, 10, he kicks off or he starts like this by saying, I thank my God or I praise God. I love that from the Apostle Paul, someone who suffered grievously, someone who went through more suffering than you and I probably ever have or ever will, still finds in his heart a position of gratitude to his God to the extent that when he writes to this church or that church or to Timothy or to Titus or to whomever he might be writing to, speak, Lord. (laughs) Well, what do you do from that? Is there something you want to say? (laughs) What was I saying? Amen. Yeah. I can't remember where I was. Oh yeah, thankfulness, gratitude. Yeah. Paul suffers a lot. (laughs) And still, in all the letters he wrote to all the people, are you with me? Let's zoom back in. The letters he wrote to all the different people, he still writes them with gratitude and with thanksgiving in his heart. The heart that's been transformed by the lavish grace of God cannot help but have a disposition of gratitude. Like, let me zoom in a little bit here to make sure that we understand the contrast of Paul's gratitude against his experience. Real quick, I want to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 through 28, where he says, three times... I was beaten with rods. I've never been beaten with rods. (laughs) Maybe you have. Um, I mean, in the South, we got whipped with sticks. That's similar, but not the same. And don't report my parents. I guess it's too late anyways. But Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Never been stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers... For all the churches. There's Paul's life. That's what he's saying he experienced and went through after becoming a Christian and following Christ and giving his life to God's mission. Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, stranded, starving out, exposed to the cold, stranded at sea. Like none of us are saying, I think I'll have some. Yet this same guy writes everybody saying, man, I thank God. I have, I praise God. Same guy who wrote a letter to the Philippians that would later, we would call it the epistle of joy because he talks so much about joy in this letter that he wrote to the Philippians while he was incarcerated, while he was in jail for preaching Jesus Christ. And it, it just, these truths I think are good for us to see, they're good for me to see, Because sometimes I can be like, oh, my internet's slow. Or, oh, that person was mean to me, or they cut me off, or I can't believe that person made that gesture out the window. How dare they? And we get so upset about so many things that it's just like, Paul went through more than we probably ever will in our life. Yet he had a heart position of thanksgiving, of gratitude and joy. And if we ask ourselves why, we would see his breakdown in his letter to the Philippians where he says, man, I've been abased, I've been abounded, meaning I've been poor, I've been rich. And he says, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content being content no matter what the circumstances are. And that's where he says, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me, saying that the source of strength for him in his suffering, wherein he can be content with much or with little when he's hungry or stranded or whatever it might be, the primary source of his strength, his joy, his gratitude and thankfulness is that he knows Jesus Christ. Yet here in this letter and in many of the other letters that Paul wrote, when he talks about the prayers that he prays for them, he pulls back another layer of the onion to show one more motivation for his gratitude, for his thanksgiving, wherein we see uh, that Paul says, man, I thank God for you guys all the time. Why? Because I keep hearing about your faith. He said, I'm hearing about your faith in all the world. He wasn't talking literally the entirety of the planet. That term to them in that day, when they say all the world, would have meant all of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the known world is kind of what it would have meant to them. Um, and so he's saying, Man, I'm hearing about your faith and all these missionary journeys I'm going on, all this traveling I'm doing, everywhere I'm going to share the gospel. I keep hearing about the faith of the Romans and I thank God. And man, I can so relate to that, wherein. There's been times where I've been sitting at your tables or hanging out with you at whatever it might be or even talking to you after church or getting together and I'm hearing about your faith or the faith of others where I'm sitting with one of our church members and they're telling me about the incredible love and generosity and kindness of another church member where I can hear about members of our church who we're who who are getting getting tested to see if they could donate their kidney to the family member of someone in their community group. Like, what ridiculous kind of love is that? And I can hear about people in our church who are going, man, I saw at a concert somebody dropped one of those compassion pamphlets for a kid, and now that kid's not going to be supported, and I couldn't help but pick it up and sponsor that kid. When I hear about people in our church that were eager to, to get out and go clean up the community that day when the trees fell down through that storm you know, a couple years ago, when I hear about uh, someone in our church having surgery and how many people in the church were calling on them, checking on them, texting them, uh, dropping off meals for them, praying with them, visiting them, asking how can we help. When I hear about all these things, when I hear about stories like Laura feeling compelled to go to Alaska on a mission trip, when I see the ways that God is is in work in our church family, I can't do anything but thank God. Because it's not like I'm the reason, or any one of us necessarily are the reason, but we're all in the work of God together in the family of God, and His Spirit is at work producing in us more and more the image and likeness of Christ, producing in us the character of Christ, and compelling us to love, care, and serve one another as well as those who are not even of the household of faith paul is a minor celebrity at the point of him writing this letter when he writes his letter to the romans he would have been a minor celebrity in the roman empire but in the in the niche culture if you will of christians he was a known celebrity And he is, it'd be like if I named some big preacher that I dropped their name and you'd be like, oh yeah, them. That's what Paul would have had uh, from his missionary travels and from his networks of people and Christians. And when they would travel to share communications, travel to care for one another and be generous to one another, Paul's name was often known. He was an apostle. And so the Romans, although they had never met Paul, apart from a few, would have known very well who he was. And from that, also probably wanted him uh, it's, it's indicative that they wanted him to come see, uh, come and visit them, spend some time with them. It's also possible that they might have been thinking, "Man, Paul's going on all these missionary journeys. He's on his third one now. He's been spending all this time with the Corinthians, and they're a hot bag of <laughs> mess right over there. And he's spending all this time with them. And he's hung out with the Ephesians for so long. And he's gone over here to the Galatia and all. He's visiting all. When is he ever going to come to Rome and see us?" And Paul, sensitive to that, but also having his own longing desire, expresses to them, man, I long to come see you. I long to visit. He explains, guys, I really wanted to come see you so I can impart some spiritual blessing to you so that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, that we can be encouraged by each other's faith, not just me, the apostle, coming to encourage you, but that we could be encouraged by each other's faith. And I want to point out how the gospel work was always at the forefront of Paul's mind. Notice he didn't say, Man, I've longed so long, or I've I've so longed to come and see you. I've wished that I could get to you for so long so that you could take me to see this epic Colosseum. Man, I, I really want to get to Rome so that maybe we could go and fish the Tiber. I really want to get to Rome so we can. Kick back and hang out and have a good time. And listen, everywhere Paul went for extended periods of time, it's probably safe to assume that there was pleasantries and that there was recreation shared potentially and that there was friendship and just casual enjoying of one another. Just like us getting together and playing the greatest board game of all time, Settlers of Catan, or whatever your favorite could be. Those things aren't bad. They're not wrong at all. But I want to highlight and point out the fact that Paul in all of his writings and all of his traveling and all of his teaching and all of his interactions and all that Paul does, he's constantly thinking about the mission and the work. He said, man, I want to come to you guys. I long to. I've been hindered so far, but I want to come so that I can impart a spiritual gift to you guys, a blessing to you guys, and that we can be encouraged by each other's faith mutually. I love how it seems as if Paul is always thinking, what might God do? What might God do if I go visit them, if I go see them? What might God do wherever I I could go? And I would hope that we could grow and have that same faith at every moment. As we go to work, as we get ready, get our kids ready, as we, maybe you're at the age of going to school Maybe whatever it might be, if it's taking your kids to soccer practice after um, after work, or if it's uh, whatever different thing that you might be engaged in or having your schedule, are you going through your day just going, well, all right, it's Monday, what's on the schedule today? What all do we got to get done today? What's on the docket? Okay, let's get that done. Let's make sure we've got the kids ready there. Let's make sure we're ready to pick up. Let's make sure that we've got the food in the crock pot and going so that we can get home, we can have dinner, and that we can do all this, and we can get homework done, and we can get it. Like... If we're not careful, we'll let the hustle and bustle and the rhythms of life pull our focus out of being missional with our lives. And so when we're thinking about school or thinking about work or thinking about, like, what would Paul be doing? And you heard me ask a question weeks ago of, man, if Jesus had your life, how would he live your life? If he owned a mechanic shop, how would he do it? If he worked at a manufacturing company, how would he do it? And I think sometimes we miss, we miss opportunities because we're just going through the motions instead of thinking like we see evident in Paul's life. Man, is there an opportunity for me to do something spiritual here? The people that I'm hanging out with, the people that I'm working with, the people that I'm studying with, the people that we're standing here watching our kids chase around the soccer ball like chickens with their heads cut off because they're first graders, and that's what it happens like. <laughs> like, could we? What, what might God do in a conversation with these parents? What might God do in a conversation with your coworkers? What might God do in a conversation with your kids? Whatever it might be, what might God do? At bare minimum, bare minimum, when believers get together, we ought to be eager to strengthen each other and mutually encourage each other. Even though Paul is eager to see the Romans and share in mutual ministry with them, he does recognize that God has had an assignment that wouldn't permit him to do what he wanted to do. If we look back again at verses 9 and 10, he said this, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. This reminds me of James. You remember when we were in the book of James a few months ago, and James is saying, hey, don't say... Tomorrow I will go here and go there and buy and sell. Rather, we should say, if the Lord wills, I will go buy and sell. Because you don't know what's going to happen. God is sovereign over all. And sometimes we get too proud in in believing that we're in control of things, that we are... that, yeah, essentially that we're in control. And Paul's sitting here going, man, I've wanted to come to see you. I pray asking that God would let me come see you by his will somehow. But he recognized at the same time that he'd been hindered so far. If we continue on and jump down to verse 13, he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, saying, I've wanted to come, but things have gotten in the way. And he says, I've wanted to come in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's been reaping harvest, bringing souls into the kingdom amongst all the Gentiles and all the places he's been going, remembering that a Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. And he says, man, I'd love to come and reap harvest among you in Rome. Then verse 14, notice this. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. What is he saying there? He says, I'm under obligation. This is Paul saying, I have been given an assignment from God to minister to Gentiles. When he says right here, he says, I'm obligated both to To Greeks and to barbarians, he's encapsulating all Gentiles right there, everyone who's not a Jew. When he says Greeks, we have to remember that this is after Alexander the Great had his massive Greek empire that was before the massive Roman Empire. And as Alexander the Great expanded his empire everywhere he went, he pervaded and spread the Hellenistic Greek culture, the way they dressed, the way they did their hair, the things that they cared about, the activities they partook in, and especially the Koine Greek language, which is why Koine Greek is what the New Testament is written in. And so even if you were a Roman and your native tongue was Latin, or even if you were a Jew and your native tongue was Hebrew, you still knew Greek, even though Rome was the empire of the day. Hellenistic Greek culture was spread under the reign of Alexander the Great. So when Paul says, I'm obligated to Greeks, he's saying everyone in the sophisticated civilization, the Roman Empire, the Greek Hellenistic culture, and he says, I'm also obligated to the barbarians, those who were not a part of that, the the societies and cultures that were outside of that Greek Hellenistic culture. They would also call the Greeks the wise. They would call the barbarians foolish. It's mean, but that's how they called them in that day. So when Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and to foolish, he's basically telling them, I've wanted to come to you. I've longed to come see you. I've been hindered so far. I'm obligated to ministry to the Gentiles. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because I kind of want us to see Sometimes living on God's mission means sacrificing what we want. Paul, with good motives, no sinful motives, desires to go to Rome and see other believers. He's saying, man, I long for this. This is what I want to do, but I've been hindered so far and I'm praying that somehow by the will of God he'd let me do it, but I'm obligated to the Greeks and the barbarians He's saying, man, this is the mission that God's given me to. And therefore, what God has given me to is more important than what I want to give myself to. And that's important because there will be times in your life that you want something that may in and of itself not be sinful or bad. Maybe it's that you want to go here, go there, and God's not letting it line up. Maybe it's that you're trying to change careers or you're uh, trying to make a house move or something work or whatever it might be. Maybe you're trying to get involved in a different uh, ministry aspect or something like that and God's not letting it line up. And sometimes I wonder if God's going, hey, (laughs) this is actually what I've given you to be doing. And so part of the challenge there, and we're not going to dig into this today, is really asking ourselves, what has God called me personally to do with my life, Um, you with your life, but ultimately recognizing that when you do say yes to the Lord and what he has given you to do with your life, sometimes it means sacrificing what we want to do. Paul there in verse 15, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, just as he had been to all the Gentiles. Now, I want to shift to the final thing I want to talk about today, which is what I alluded to earlier, the gospel. This is a term that Paul is going to use a lot in this letter. It's a term we use a lot in Christianity, in church, and in general, the gospel. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. What is the gospel? And sometimes it's helpful to identify what it is not to help us understand what it truly is. As Paul finishes his introduction by saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, he launches into the meat of his letter by kicking the door down and moving into the living room of the book of Romans, which is the gospel. There's other rooms that he might touch on in the letter to the Romans, but the living room where most of the time spent is what is the gospel. So, verse 16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So now, let's make sure That we're not calling a Dr. Pepper a Coke. I wanna take a minute today to talk about what the gospel is not. Because understanding the gospel matters. I grew up in, in a circle of Christianity where we would use phrases like full gospel. And now I'm in a position where I'm going, actually, I think that was extra gospel. Not that it was contrary to gospel or anti biblical. But it was saying that things were the gospel that were not the gospel. And that muddies the waters. Because the message that you and I have been given is the message of the gospel. It is the message that transforms us. It is the message that we take out as ambassadors for Christ. Saying, be reconciled to God. What if I told you, hey, you should probably eat some fat-free, sugar-free Greek yogurt on a daily basis because it is loaded with nutrients. It's loaded with protein, going to help you be nice and strong. It's got probiotics, which is going to help your gut health. And so you should eat some uh, non-fat, sugar-free Greek yogurt every day. You might hear that and I could say, and listen, I'm not a nutritionist, but I've read them and they pretty much all agree that that's a really good dietary habit that's good for your health. And you might think, well, okay, you've made a good argument for why I should do this. Sure, I'll try it. Now, what if we did all that, and I said, okay, here you go, and I handed you a bowl of cookies and cream ice cream, which is the undisputed greatest ice cream flavor in the world. If you disagree, repent, ye sinner. And if I handed I'm just joking. If I handed you, after saying all of that about Greek yogurt, if I handed you some cookies and cream ice cream, and I said, and here's the added benefit. It's delicious. You're going to love it. And you took a bite and you went, oh, this is delicious. You got it. No doubt. I will for sure eat a bunch of this every single day. I can't believe it's going to do all those things for me and taste this good. You're smiling because you understand the problem. Is that I painted a picture for you of an expected outcome yet i gave you a means to something that will cause a completely different outcome and i told you it was yogurt when it was actually ice cream this is why it's important that we clearly define and explain and grasp and understand what the gospel actually is because there's so many things in our world and in our society today that are being called the gospel that if you follow them and put your faith and trust in them will lead to your destruction rather than the outcome you're hoping for. False gospels. There are five popular false gospels that I want to confront and point out today that are popular in our day and age and in our culture. Number one, the false gospel of all roads lead to God. I'll take a drink on that one. This one's pretty easy to point as a flawed, wrong, false gospel, a lie. Through Scripture, Jesus Himself, you know John 14, 6, said, I am the, the, and the. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I know Oprah's really inspiring, but when she tells you all paths lead to God, she's lying to you. And here's the danger. Paul warned Timothy that in the last days, people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but will heap up for themselves teachers to scratch their itching ears and tell them things that will satisfy the desires of their flesh. And when your flesh desires sin, you don't want a gospel that says you're a sinner. You want a false gospel that says, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the day we live in. Where so much of the heartbeat of our culture and our society is, well, that may be your truth about Jesus, but that's not my truth. Another time, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said in verses 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. All paths lead to God, huh? Verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. If all paths lead to God, why would Jesus say that those who find the path are few? A core doctrine of this false gospel is that there is no such thing as sin. A core message of this false gospel, these messages are do whatever makes you happy. Follow your truth. Follow your heart. Listen, the moment that truth become relative, it is no longer truth. The moment that truth is relative and subjective to your truth, my truth, it is no longer truth. And you can argue with me all you want to, but in, anytime the gravity is, is, is weighty enough, you will find what I mean. And I'll give you an example of that. Go into a courtroom and argue that truth does not matter. They make you swear under oath Do you solemnly swear to tell thee the whole and nothing but thee so help you God? It's funny how truth isn't relative in the courtroom. And if that gavel comes down and the judge says, guilty on all counts, you can sit there all you want to and go, well, judge, actually, I'd like to talk to you about how that's your truth, but my truth is that I'm innocent and free. So have a nice day. I'm going to go about my way. And the judge will say, no, you will go about the way I send you in cuffs. At that moment, your truth don't matter. At the moment where your life is in the hand of the airline pilot and the calculations must be true, truth matters. At the moment that your chest is split open and they are operating on your heart, truth matters. You don't want a surgeon going, Well, my truth is that the liver can do the same thing as the heart. So we're going to. Truth matters. Second false gospel I want to point out today is the gospel of be a good person so you can go to heaven. This is the most common gospel that is wired into our conscience. This is why when you sin, your proneness is to try and clean it up with your good works rather than just confess it and repent and give it to God. This is also what we want Because if we do good enough, we feel like we have an ability to pat ourselves on the back. This is also what Paul combats more than anything. This is the false gospel that Paul fights the most, and we're going to see a lot of it in the book of Romans. Paul knocking away at this idea that you can, by the law or by your good works or by your good deeds, earn approval and acceptance and salvation from God, and it's a lie that will damn you because your good works can never be good enough to pay for your sin because, as we're going to see in Romans chapter 3, that the payment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. This is a false gospel because Ephesians 2 tells us in verses 8 through 10, for by grace, meaning a free unmerited gift, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So you can't go, I'm a pretty good Christian, If you feel like there's a moment where you're doing a good job, your heart like Paul needs to be, thank you, God. Not, man, I'm working pretty hard right now. I'm doing a pretty good job saying no to sin. If you're doing a a good job saying no to sin, you need to say, thank you, Lord, for your spirit within me. Thank you for your work in my heart. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writing to the Galatians says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified this is the lie that the judaizers are bringing into christianity that paul is combating so hardly and that he's addressing in so many of his letters especially especially romans and galatians anytime someone would say yeah yeah we get it jesus is the messiah but you need jesus plus circumcision or you need jesus plus kosher jewish dietary restrictions or you need jesus plus oral tradition, or you need Jesus plus ritual cleansing practices, or you need Jesus plus church attendance, or you need Jesus plus volunteering at the shelter, or you need Jesus plus giving a lot of money to the church, or you need Jesus plus helping little sweet old ladies walk across the street with their groceries. Whatever you want to add to Jesus ceases to be the gospel. Our trust, our confidence, our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the only thing we bring to our salvation is faith in what he did and repentance from what we have done. It's the only thing we contribute. And when we receive the Holy Spirit through that repentance and faith in Christ, he gives us a new heart and changes the way that we live. But what we so often like to do is put the cart before the horse and try and be good so that God will accept us when he's going, no, you're dead in sin. You need to be made alive in Christ. And until you repent and are made alive in Christ, you have dead works. The next false uh, gospel, the third that I want to point out, is the false gospel of follow Jesus, have enough faith, think enough positive thoughts, confess enough positive confessions, and God will keep you rich and healthy. That's a good title, right? So run on a little bit a.k.a. the prosperity gospel. This false gospel has pervaded American Christianity strongly for at least the last 50 years and is now being exported to the poorest of countries around the world. In John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people from a small basket of food and everyone goes, Whoa! Let's make this guy our king. He just fed all of us miraculously from a small basket of fish and bread. Jesus, hearing their hearts, goes, No, this isn't good. And he retreats away. And then he goes across the lake, and the next day everybody wakes up and they're like, Where'd Jesus go? Because we kind of want that to happen again. And they find out and realize he's across the lake, and they go across the lake and they find him. And they're like, Jesus, how'd you get here? And he ignores their question and he says, you don't want me because you understood the signs. You want me because you had your fill of the loaves. You want me because I fed you. You want me for what I can do for you, not because you understand who I am or why I came. This is the heart of the evil of the prosperity gospel, it is that follow Jesus so he can do all this other stuff for you. And to those people, when Jesus says that, when he confronts the motives of their heart that you only want me for what I can do for you, they say, they try and change the subject or trick him like, well, uh, well Jesus, I mean, uh, Moses fed us manna from heaven. He gave us bread from heaven. So what can you do? And he said, no, my father Gave bread from heaven. Gave manna from heaven. And he is again today giving you bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And he says. Whoever eats of this bread will never hunger again. And they say. Give us this bread. And he says I am the bread of life. Go ahead and eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says. He lost many disciples that day. Look at Jesus chasing away crowds, people who are following him for what he can give them. He gives them hard truths. He confronts the motives of their heart, and when they realize that he's not going to give them what they want, they go back to their lives. Another reason that we know this gospel is false is what we read earlier about the apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 11, where he said, yeah, I was beaten with rods three times and I was stoned once and I was shipwrecked and all of that stuff. So apparently Paul didn't know the truth that he wasn't supposed to be experiencing those things. Or maybe he didn't have enough faith to make sure that those things didn't happen. This is a guy who laid on a dead boy and brought him back to life. I don't know that faith is part of this. Or maybe he was living in sin at certain moments and that's where he got out of God's will. I remember when I was growing up, I grew up in the theology I'm talking about right now and I remember when I grew up and there was a a prominent well-known pastor in that circle of faith who in his 50s died from cancer and I remember asking like, how did this happen? If he knew, if he he served God and loved God and, and he had faith and he stood on his confession and he confessed his verses and like, how... I know there are people of faith. How did this happen? How did he not get his healing, his miracle? And I was told, well, Stephen, you know, we don't know what kind of secret sin he might have had in his life that got in the way of his miracle. And this gospel, false gospel, requires that you make excuses for the outcomes that don't make sense with, with what is clear and truth and in Scripture and in our life's experience. And the funny thing is, this is the exact same argument that Job's friends are rebuked for. By the way, the book of Job is pretty hard to swallow with the prosperity gospel. With all the suffering he went through as a righteous man, who James talks about the purposes of God in Job's suffering. And, mind you, That at the end of the book of Job, throughout all this time where his stupid friends were trying to encourage him, and they're saying, Job, it's obvious that the suffering's happening in your life because of sin in your life. Get that right with God, and this suffering's gonna stop. And Job's like, I don't have sin in my life right now. You're wrong. At the end of the book, God rebukes Job's friends and says, pray for them because they spoke wrongly about me. So, Can suffering be a result from sin in our life? Yes, and we could go to those scriptures. But to deduct all suffering to didn't have enough faith or were in sin or out of the will of God, whatever it might be, is a false gospel, a lie. And the reason that I hate this false gospel so much is because I have seen so many people who believe that if i just have enough faith and if i just give enough money and if i confess enough and have enough positive thoughts and if i if i think about good and speak good then then my miracles finally going to come i've seen enough people be poor and broke year after year after year after year after year hoping for their miracle i've seen enough people die from sickness and disease and it will only be a matter of time before life steamrolls that false gospel and you have to either live in denial or in cognitive dissonance similar things or worse and i have seen this is that you go god must not be real and what if paul what if paul's going through all of this and like God, hello, stranded, shipwrecked, hello, beaten with rods, stoned, are you kidding me? And the apostles all rejoiced when they suffered. They're like, wow, we get, to, we get to take this beating for Jesus? Are you kidding me? It's a false gospel that will lead you to destruction. It will give you false hope. It will disillusion you. And these preachers and teachers on TV have snake oil to sell And they know that they have this structure of, hey, if you need your financial breakthrough, then you write that $1,000 check to my ministry and God's going to bless your finances and cancel your debt. Snake oil. Run away from those teachings. Might I remind you also in Philippians 4, what we mentioned already, that Paul said, whether I've been rich or poor, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. He didn't say, when I've been poor, I stand on my scriptures and I declare that I'm rich, wealthy, and prosperous. See, although God can bring you out of poverty financially, that's not the gospel. The true gospel is about answering spiritual poverty, a.k.a. sin. Although God can and might, I hope and pray, that he heals your cancer, the true gospel is about healing spiritual cancer, a.k.a. sin. And the fullness of the gospel eventually is that every single one of us will be free from sickness and pain and sorrow and grief and lack and and poverty in the new world, in the new earth, the new heavens, in the new Jerusalem. Fourth, the false gospel of self-help, that Jesus is here to make your life better, to make you a better person. This sounds like here's five steps to a godly marriage. Or, or I want to be careful there. Books like that are good and, and helpful. And, and, and what I'm trying to distinguish here, though, is things that can be good but are not the gospel like good Christian marriage books, those are good. Like, read them. Learn from them. But that's not the gospel. And in fact, there's nothing that will be greater for your marital health than believing the gospel. (laughs) Because you learn grace, and you ain't going to have a good marriage without grace. You ain't going to have a good marriage without forgiveness. The false gospel of self-help. Listen, Jesus did not come to make you a better person. He came to make you who are dead in sin, alive in Christ. It's not learn from Jesus' teaching so you can be a better person. It's learn from Jesus' teaching that you're dead in sin and you need a savior, you need a new heart. That's the gospel. This is not. The gospel is not a message of self-improvement or self-empowerment. It's a message of self-denial. And finally, the fifth false gospel I want to point out is the gospel of mysticism. The, The universe is all one. We are all one. Find your inner spark the answer lies in you. Paul and John addressed these lies that were early called Gnosticism. Gnosticism still exists, but Gnosticism has has morphed and shifted into many different things, like mysticism, Eastern mysticism, psychics, mediums, chakras, um, uh, you know, cleansing with sage, all those kinds of things. I don't have time to do a whole teaching on all that stuff right now. But the idea that you just look internally, the answers are in you. And if you could just discover who you really are and become one with the universe, then you'll find enlightenment and truth and fulfillment and meaning and happiness, false gospel. And if you're entertaining those ideas, please read 1 John, the whole letter in its entirety. It's not true. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's a way to get rich and to get healthy? No. He said, I'm not. He didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's going to make your life better. He, his life was pretty rough. Paul didn't say, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's going to give you better self-esteem. Although that will happen in light of the truth. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the means by which our greatest problem is remedied. Your debt, your sickness, your family tensions or relations, your hopes and aspirations that aren't coming to exact in your life, all those things might be problems, but they're not your greatest problem. There is no greater problem in your life than sin. And if you ever just read through the whole New Testament, instead of just stopping and cherry picking, you start to feel how much, man, the apostles and Jesus all really talked about sin and salvation a lot. And sure, they talked about marriage and parenting and some other things, but the message is the gospel. We must return to the true gospel, a gospel that proclaims a great and holy God. A gospel that proclaims the wretchedness of our estate in sin. A gospel that proclaims the great love of God in sending a Savior for that sin or from that sin. A gospel that proclaims or that accentuates the cross as the ultimate display of God's love and wrath as Jesus died in our place. A gospel that calls all people to repentance, to turn from sin and have faith in Jesus. A gospel that expects followers of Christ to actually follow him. Lord, may we see and know and understand and believe and respond to the true gospel Guard us from error, Lord. Pull us away from deception. Let us believe the truth, the beauty of the good news that you came and took on flesh to pay for our sin, that we could be forgiven and not condemned to death. And that not only have we been forgiven, but you have invited us close to you. Lord, if there's anyone who who needs today to repent from sin and trust in Christ, give them the grace and the courage to do so. Lord, give glory to yourself in the way that these rich truths bring transformation of the heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need to respond to that truth today in your own way, confess your sin, repent of it, and place your trust in in Jesus Christ, where we stand as we worship God.